Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hello, and welcome back to our series of episodes on the history of Zionism and the history of Israel. In this segment, we are going to pick up right after the United Nations vote on November 29, 1947, when the United Nations and therefore the world community decides, 50 years after Theodore Herzl had launched political Zionism, to create a Jewish state. And what I want to do in contradistinction to what we do in most of these segments is actually read you a piece of Amos Oz's a very important book called The Tale of Love and Darkness, which is essentially his autobiography. We mentioned in a previous segment that Amos Oz's father, who had immigrated to Palestine, immigrated to Palestine because in Europe he saw all these signs that said, Jews, go to Palestine. And when he got to Palestine, he saw signs that said, Jews, go back to Europe. That was Amos Oz's father's experience. And Oz is a young boy, a very young boy in 1947. Uh, with a very, very ill mother. She's in a deep depression. Uh, his father is a kind of a distant person, a very distant father who doesn't show affection very much. But Amos Oz, as a young boy, has the following experience on the night of November 29th, 1947. And I just want to take a few minutes to read three paragraphs of Oz's autobiography to you, because I think it captures better than anything else that I've ever read, at least, the sentiment of the Jewish people of what had taken place in the United Nations in New York that day on November 29th, 1947. Amos Oz unfortunately dies in December of 2018, not that long ago, is several times nominated for the Nobel Prize, never wins it, but is one of Israel's great, great authors and novelists. And this is what he writes about his recollections of his youth in November 1947. In Jerusalem, by the way, at that time, as like all across Palestine, when the, when the news reaches them by radio of what's happened in the United Nations, there's dancing in the streets and so on and so forth, and that's what he describes. He writes as follows. And very late at a time when this child had never been allowed not to be fast asleep in bed, maybe at three or four o'clock, I crawled under my blanket in the dark, fully dressed. This is after all those hours of dancing on his father's shoulders. And after a while, my father's hand lifted my blanket in the dark, not to be angry with me because I'd gotten into bed with my clothes on, but to get in and lie down next to me. And he was in his clothes too, which were drenched in sweat from the crush of the crowds, just like mine. And we had an iron rule. You must never, for any reason, get between the sheets in your outdoor clothes. My father lay beside me for a few minutes and said nothing, although normally, he detested silence and hurried to banish it. But this time he did not touch the silence that there was between us, but shared it, just with his hand lightly stroking my head. 
as though in this darkness my father had turned into my mother. And then he told me in a whisper, without once calling me your highness or your honor, which he did a lot, what some hooligans did to him and his brother David in Odessa, and what some Gentile boys did to him at his Polish school in Vilna, and the girls joined in too, and the next day, when his father, Grandpa Alexander, came to school to register a complaint, the bullies returned to re refused to return the torn trousers that they had taken from him, but attacked his father, Grandpa, in front of his eyes, forcing him down onto the pavement stones in the middle of the playground, and they removed his trousers too. And the girls laughed and made dirty jokes and said that all the Jews were so-and-so, while the teachers watched and said nothing. Or maybe they were laughing too. And in a still voice of darkness, with his hand still losing its way in my hair, because he was not used to stroking me, my father told me under my blanket in the early hours of November 30th, 1947, bullies may well bother you in the street or at school someday. They may do it precisely because you are a bit like me. But from now on, from the moment we have our own state, you will never be bullied just because you are a Jew and because Jew or so's and so's. Not that. Never again. From tonight, that's finished here. Forever. I reached out sleepily to touch his face, just below his high forehead. And all of a sudden, instead of his glasses, my fingers met tears. Never in my life, before or after that night, not even when my mother died, did I see my father cry. And in fact, I didn't see him cry that night either. It was too dark. Only my left hand saw. And when Amos Oz's father gets into bed next to him, shares with him this humiliating experience of having his pants taken away from him in school and the teachers laughing and the bullies attacking his father when his father comes to complain. It's the ultimate European experience that his father's sharing with his young, now Israeli son. And his father says to him, that's over. That is ended forevermore. And to understand Israel, to understand Israel's psychology, to understand Israel's psyche, to understand Israel's need to defend itself as Israelis see it, you need to understand how in the minds of Israelis then and in the minds of Israelis now, what transformed Jewish history from that victimhood of Europe to the Jew that we know today was the creation of the Jewish state. Now, as I mentioned to you in our last segment, this, the War of Independence breaks out first as a civil war between the local Jews and the local Arabs on November 29, 1947 at that UN vote. And that's the war that is going to continue costing a lot of lives between November and then May 1948, when Israel will finally declare independence in that very famous scene when David Ben-Gurion on May 14, 1948 stands up in the Tel Aviv Art Museum and declares Israel's independence. When it formally declares independence with the reading of the Declaration of Independence, five Arab armies now, now it's not a civil war, five Arab armies attack the brand new Jewish state. They are Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and Iraq. Iraq, it's worth knowing, by the way, doesn't even share a border with, Egypt, with Israel, uh, but it joins the, the action also. The war is a very complicated war, which we're not going to go into detail now. It ends 
basically at the very beginning of 1949, at which point the Arabs understand that they are beaten, and one by one, not all at the same time, and it takes weeks and actually months, and this drags out, each of those Arab countries signs an armistice with Israel. It's very important to know that they did not sign peace agreements with Israel. They signed armistices, which is to say they signed an agreement to end the fighting. And that's a very important distinction for two reasons. Number one, they are very explicit. They said this is not an agreement to end hostilities. This is an armistice to end hostilities now. And they say explicitly, we will be back. We will be back and we will attack you and we will destroy you. They make that promise openly, publicly, without hiding it to the international community in 1949. And unfortunately, of course, it's a promise that they will live up to. The other thing that's very important to remember is that these armistice lines of 1949 are what are going to eventually become called the 1967 Green Line. When people talk today about the importance of going back to the 1967 pre-war Green Line, it's important to remember that the 1967 line is really the 1949 line. That's exactly the same line. And the 1949 line is only an agreement where the Arabs agreed to stop fighting then before they could attack Israel once again. We speak very often in the 21st century about those lines of 1949 or 1967, commonly called the Green Line, everything over the Green Line being the occupied territories. We speak about that line as if there's something sacred, holy, that the whole world agreed to, but nobody agreed to it. Only Israel agreed to it, basically. The Arabs said that it wasn't a peace treaty. It certainly wasn't a border. It was an armistice line. But in any event, that will, come, that will become much more important later on. Israel declares its independence on May 14, 1948. President Harry Truman of the United States, even though he's urged by the State Department not to recognize Israel for a whole array of reasons, uh, actually does recognize Israel. He's the first country to do it. He recognizes Israel 11 minutes after Israel's created. Now, there are two other things that we have to talk about about this war of independence. Again, there are many things to talk about about the war. It's a long war. 1% of the civilian Jewish population of Israel is going to get killed during that war. So in America today, for example, that would be about 3.3 million people. 1% uh, is a lot of people, even though it doesn't sound that way. It meant that every Israeli family knew people who were killed. It meant that many Israeli couples lost all of their children or both of their sons or their only son in that war. It was a disastrous war in many ways, but it's beyond what we can cover in this brief, in this brief review. What I do want to talk about are two other elements of the war, uh, one of which takes place in June 1948 called the, the Altalena. The Altalena was a boat that was purchased by Americans. They were members of the Irgun who were living in America who were part of a much more extreme version of the Irgun. Menachem Begin's Irgun and the Lehi and the Haganah had all been wrapped into the Israel Defense Forces in May 1948 when Israel's created. Not happily. Those were different military organizations that had fought each other actually in addition to fighting the Arabs and the British and all of a sudden they're under one central command. Nobody was terribly happy about it. Uh, but David Bergoyne understood, if you're going to have a state, the state can have one army. It can't have a variety of different kinds of armies, which we'll come back to in a minute about why that's so important. And these American members of the Irgun, without telling anybody in Palestine or in Israel, without informing Menachem Begin, actually purchase a ship. It's a whole long, complicated story. The ship makes its way around the Mediterranean. 
kind of disguising itself as a merchant ship. But eventually it goes to Port de Boue in France, where it's loaded up with 150 million francs worth of arms and hundreds of survivors of the war. And it makes its way off to Palestine to bring arms to Israel or to the Irgun. It's not entirely clear. Bengen knows nothing about it. When the Altalena sets sail from France for Palestine on June 11th, 1948, there was actually a ceasefire, one of the two ceasefires in the War of Independence, and neither side is allowed to import arms. So when Begin finally finds out from listening to London radio, that's how he finds out, that this boat is on the way to Palestine, he's horrified. He's horrified because he knows that David Ben-Gurion already doesn't trust him, and now David Ben-Gurion is going to think that he, Menachem Begin, is subverting the unity of the IDF by trying to bring in arms uh, for his own militia, the Irgun. It's a very complicated series of events that unfold. Begin does go and tells Ben-Gurion what's happened. Ben-Gurion, as he predicted, does not believe him. Ben-Gurion believes that he knew about it all along. The ship uh, docks at a place called Kfar Vitkin, and there are actually Irgun members and Haganah members who are theoretically part of the IDF now, but still not really coalesced into one. Shooting actually breaks out on the beach between the Irgun and the Haganah. Members of both the Irgun and the Haganah are killed. So there's a kind of a civil war going on in Israel in June 1948, about a month after the country is created. The boat leaves again, docks again in Tel Aviv. To make a very long story short, a young commander named Yitzhak Rabin takes over uh, the fighting on the part of the Haganah or the Israel Defense Forces on the beach. And they fire a cannon at the boat, which is filled with explosives. And eventually, of course, the, the ammunition, of course, explodes. And the boat completely disintegrates in a huge fireball. Very few people are killed. Some are killed on the boat. But the boat had actually run aground not too far off the shore of Tel Aviv. And many people actually just jumped off the boat, swam to shore, or even waded their way to shore, and survived. Why do I mention the Altalena as such an important incident, of course, which entire books have been written about this incident, is a very complicated series of events. Why do I want to mention it even briefly? For a couple of reasons. First of all, there are many people who believe that in the shooting at Kvarvitkin and the shooting that ensued once again on the beach of Tel Aviv with Haganah and Irgun members fighting at each other and more people getting killed. In other words, round two of this new Israeli civil war, there are many people who believe that David Ben-Gurion was actually trying to have Menachem Begin killed. He had despised Begin during those years of 1942 to 1947 when Begin was leading the Irgun in the underground, when Begin was hiding from the British, but really also hiding from Ben-Gurion himself. There are many people who felt that at that point, Ben-Gurion and Begin were actually locked in a death battle with Ben-Gurion trying to kill Begin. Uh, and that will become very important in another incident about reparations, which we'll come back to later. And the other very important thing to remember is that this battle over this ship is due to the fact that David Ben-Gurion, who's the prime minister at this point, says there will be only one military force in the state of Israel. Any serious political entity can only have one military force. And if you think about where we are now in 2020, and even look at the West Bank where there's a Palestinian authority, the Palestinian Authority has a force, which is mostly Fatah, but there is also Hamas working out of, the, out of the West Bank. There is also the Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine working out of the West Bank. 
There was also a small cell of Islamic Jihad working out of, out of the West Bank. In other words, one of the things that still makes working with, compromising with, negotiating with the Palestinians so difficult is that Israel knows that if it were to sign a deal with Hamas, let's say, in Gaza, that doesn't necessarily bind the Islamic Jihad or the PFLP or anybody else. Uh, and one of the things that Israel is able to do at an early stage, which unfortunately has not yet happened in the ranks of the Palestinians, is the uniting of all of the fighting force under one entity, in Israel's case, the Israeli government, in the Palestinians' case, for example, the Palestinian Authority, and so forth. Now that we've covered all of these various developments in the war of independence and so forth, there remains one very complicated, very painful, and very controversial dimension of Israel's founding that we need to discuss in the next segment, which is what happened to those Arabs who were in Israel-Palestine at the beginning of the war? Where did they find themselves at the end of the war? And how did the Palestinian refugee problem really begin? Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordas and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.